All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are coming to, not quite done, coming close to the end of our Colossians. Uh, and we've got Dan, who's going to be bringing the word today. Let's give a big hand for Dan. Let me tell you something about Dan. Um, I've never said this, Dan, to you at least. I've said it to many other people. Uh, so, so Dan is, uh, has probably studied in an academic sense the Word of God more than anyone in this church. I'm fairly certain that's true. To the point that he has actually written a commentary on the book of Matthew. And I am always freaked out when I have to speak on the book of Matthew. And Dan is in the room. I'm very thankful that today Dan is not speaking from Matthew, but from Colossians. Let's give him a big hand. Thank you, Doug. Watch my time here. Um, yeah, the book of Colossians, as Aaron has introduced it, it's no secret that the theme of Colossians is the fact that Christ is supreme. No additions, nothing else, just Christ. Paul makes that very obvious. And before we get to the passage um, that I'm going to be speaking on today, I just want to reread what Paul says about Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. says, he is the image of the invisible God. Literally, he is the icon of the invisible God. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross." Now, for those of us who love God and love Jesus, we take these words at face value and we affirm them, right? But for someone who doesn't know Christ, these are just words, right? I'm reminded of, and I wish I had the video because I was so thrilled to show this little 30-second clip from Elf. Um, So if you've seen the movie Elf, my kids have seen it I don't know how many times, so I've just sort of observed this by walking through the room. But there's one scene where he's walking down the street, and he goes by this store, and the sign in the window says, World's Best Cup of Coffee. And he goes in, and he says, Congratulations! You did it! Way to go! And he leaves. And so Jesus, and understand how I say this, we're claiming he is the world's best cup of coffee. But how can we prove that? Paul makes all these amazing statements, but he doesn't really take the time to give us philosophical arguments. He doesn't give us logical arguments. He doesn't reason his way to this. He simply states it. And those of us who accept it, we believe this by faith. But for those who are outside, why should they believe that Jesus is supreme? 
So let me read, and if you are able to stand, please stand. Uh, and I'm going to read Colossians 3, 11 through 16. Uh, it's the passage that Aaron has given me to speak on. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, close yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I just read that passage, but actually before we get to that passage, I would like to take a small detour. So, but first let me say, in Colossians 3, Paul is going to be describing the supreme community or the supreme fellowship. So again, it fits with this idea that Jesus is supreme. But first of all, I want to go back just a little bit and take just a couple minutes to talk about the idea that this people of God, um, Paul says in Colossians 1, that we are part of a new kingdom, which means we have a new allegiance. And so in Colossians 1.13, he says, He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So there is a main theme in Scripture, and that's this idea of there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there's the kingdom of the enemy. It can take on various forms, but behind it all, Jesus exposed Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And so there's this allegiance that comes when you're part of a kingdom, right? And in the book of Matthew, interestingly, Doug uh, mentioned that. So I've been working on that for the last couple years. And one of the main themes in Matthew is that Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of as the expectations of Israel. He is Messiah. He is king. And so when Jesus calls people to follow him, he's basically saying, you need to swear allegiance to me. That's what following is. It says, I'm going to follow you, nobody else. And we know the disciples struggled to understand that. They betrayed Jesus. But that's what following means. It's not about believing facts about Jesus. It's declaring your allegiance to follow Jesus and to live according to what he said. And so allegiance to a kingdom means that you no longer have allegiance to anything else. And what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In chapter 6, he says, you can't serve two masters. But I think most of us in the back of our minds still believe that somehow we can. So, for instance, in America, every culture has its own expression of the gospel. It doesn't mean it's false. It just means it does take on cultural expressions. Um, But in America, I'm convinced that for a lot of people, they are more American Christians than they are Christian Americans. Because, I mean, I was raised in a culture where to be extremely patriotic was basically godliness. 
Um, and so there's a danger that we exalt America and we make it almost equal with Jesus. And we see no contradiction between the empire of America and the kingdom of God. But yet Jesus says it's very clear you can't serve two masters. And no matter what you think about America, it cannot even come close to the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, if you choose to follow me, you're going to be switched from one kingdom to another. So there's a new allegiance. The other thing I want to say is the beginning of this passage, and this is uh, Doug borrowed from my passage last week, so I'm going to jump back and borrow from his passage this week. In chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says that we have a renewed identity. He says, in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, Christ is supreme. So it's interesting, Paul has mentioned this several times. He says it in Romans, says it in Corinthians, says it again in Galatians, he says it here, that if you are in Christ, any other category that may apply to you in culture, in your family, any other environment does not apply here. They're simply in Christ. That's all that it is. There's no rich or poor, no black or white, nothing in between, no slave or free, no Jew or Greek. He says barbarians. Barbarians are those who really didn't know Greek. Scythians are sort of like the boogeyman of the ancient world. They were this tribe of fierce horseback warriors who were just feared. And so I can imagine a mother telling her child, if you don't behave, the Scythians are going to come and they're going to kill you if you don't do what I'm telling you. Okay, because they were, they were the terrorists of that time. And amazingly, Paul says, if there's a Scythian in the church, he's no longer a Scythian. He's in Christ. And again, how often do we struggle to live into that reality? Because we look at each other, we form snap judgments, maybe based on the way people dress, the way they act, who they identify as, and we come up with categories for people when Jesus says and Paul says, you're either for me or you're against me. If you are with me, you are in Christ, and that is all that matters. No other categories apply, and that is something the church has really struggled uh, to do with, at least in my experience. So then we come to the, the main point of what I wanted to talk about tonight, and that is the idea that Jesus has created new community. So we back, go back to all those amazing claims that Paul makes about Jesus. Paul doesn't attempt to prove them in some of the normal ways that we think about proving rational arguments. What Paul does is he agrees with Jesus, and he says the proof of the supremacy of Jesus Christ is God's people living in unity. That's the proof. And if you were here last Sunday, I read what is um, probably a text, not to go too extreme, but it really did change my life. Um, I grew up in very fundamentalist Christianity, where separation was something that we thought was a big deal. So we looked at other groups of Christians, and we didn't believe that they loved God as much as we did. We didn't agree with how they interpreted Scripture, and we felt the need to separate, to be distinct. And I grew up in that, and I never thought about it, I just accepted it. And then when I was in seminary, a fundamentalist seminary, 
I had never, well, let me back up. I had never really met Christians who weren't fundamentalist Baptist Christians like me. All my friends in high school were Catholics. In my upbringing, if you were Catholic, you definitely weren't Christian. Uh, matter of fact, Catholics were going to hell. I mean, we pretty much knew that. So I didn't consider my Catholic friends Christians, and so I would witness to them, um, and they would say, oh, I believe in Jesus, and my dad would say, well, they use some of the same words, but they don't mean the same thing. Years later, I find out they really did love God and they loved Jesus, but at that particular time, I've considered them unbelievers. So in my experience, I thought I'd never been, I'd never seen any Christian who wasn't like me. So I go to seminary, and I start working at UPS, and I start to meet guys and gals who say they love God, but they're not fundamentalist Baptist Christians like me. And all of a sudden, I'm forced to make, at least in my mind, forced to make a choice. Maybe these people really do love God. Maybe they're not just deceived. Maybe they're not just strong Christians. Maybe they really do love God, and they just have a different understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so I started going back to all the verses that I was taught that proved why we couldn't spend time with other Christians who weren't exactly like us. And that's when I read John 17 again. Again, I was raised in a tradition where you read your Bible basically every year. And that's a great thing. Um, And so I'm sure I must have read John 17 countless times over the years. But as I was going through this struggle and this search to try and identify what it meant to be a Christian, I came across this passage... Again, Jesus is speaking on the night that he was betrayed. And again, I read this verse last Sunday morning, but I'm going to read it again. So Jesus prays on the night he was betrayed, and he prays for us. He says, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, and I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me, even as I have loved them. When I read that verse, all of a sudden it dawned on me, that Jesus was saying that the proof in the power of the gospel is only accomplished by the power of the Spirit creating this unity and Christians actually live like they love each other. Because Paul says, if you don't do that, and Jesus says that, the world has every reason to believe that the gospel is not true. I mean, you think about that. That's a serious... I mean, we talk about the fact that it's all up to God, and there's a sense in which that's true. But Jesus and Paul make it very clear that we are the revelation of who God is. And I don't have time to go into this biblical theme, but it starts way back in Genesis chapter 1, when the writer of Genesis says that human beings are made, not just necessarily in the image of God, but they are created to be the image of God. What is God like? Look at his people. So then God calls Israel. He says, you're my chosen people, a royal priesthood, a kingly nation. And again, they were supposed to be 
the nations around. Well, what is Israel's God like? What is Yahweh like? Look at Israel's culture, which was why God disciplined them, because he says they profaned my name. They made it common. And so the same thing is true for the church. We are called to image God, to image Christ. What is Jesus like? Look at the church. Is that sort of scary? Um, Because, again, what do a lot of people think of the church? We're hypocrites. We fight. There are certain groups of people we don't love, or we say we do, but we really act like we don't. Um, We are known for a lot of things that don't reflect Jesus. And so Paul says this new community that is created by the Spirit We have the awesome responsibility of showing, make it personal now, what Jesus is like to the east end of Richmond. So I was raised in a culture where we preached a lot about personal holiness. So all the application is, what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? It's interesting that, yeah, certainly there is such a thing as personal holiness. But have you ever tried to have personal unity? Okay, you can't. You have to have other people to have unity. And we talked about this last Sunday. Unity is not about everybody having to say the exact same thing. It's not uniformity. It's not pushing people into a mold. Unity is messy. So let me get back to our passage in Colossians 3. If I can find that sheet with that scripture. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Does that sound like a romantic ideal of what community life is like? It assumes that I'm going to hurt you, that I'm going to sin against you, that I'm going to do something that makes you angry that you're going to do something that makes me angry. We're not going to agree. We're going to have violent disagreements about this issue or that issue. And somehow in American Christianity, we have come to the idea that if we can't get along, well, then we just leave. Again, I'm not trying to say anything about anyone who's been a part of this congregation and left, but that is the reality of American Christianity. Think about the early church in Colossae. Where were they going to go? All they had were house churches. So maybe you could go to another house church, but it's still basic Christianity. In America, we have the luxury, you don't like this, you just go somewhere else. Maybe you like the music here. Maybe you like the child care there. Okay, we are consumers of Christianity. And so it's easy for us to leave and go somewhere else. But the reality is, that is not what unity is about. Unity is working through all this junk that we do as people to each other and not just walking away, but doing what the Bible says of forgiving, bearing with one another, being long-suffering. Okay, that assumes that it's going to be messy. And again, we have this idealized understanding of what church is supposed to be like or what house church is supposed to be like. It's just this group of people that just love each other. But... It's hard. It's difficult. I can speak for our house church. We've had some times where we had to talk through some stuff. Okay, it wasn't all just nice. It can get messy because we're people. 
And the Bible assumes that unity is not just people who love each other and they think all the same things and they never have problems. It assumes that it's going to be very, very messy. I mean, you read the New Testament. These churches were messy. Okay? You think we have problems? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you haven't been here long enough. But we do. Um, The early church had all sorts of problems. But still, it appears that the one thing that they basically got right was they showed what it meant to be unified. Because how else do you explain the early church growing so quickly that within the space of almost 300 years, the Roman Empire felt the need to make that religion legitimate? Okay, so it's very, very powerful what unity can do. And so we have that opportunity to live into that unity. And again, I'm not saying anything profound, anything you haven't heard before, but when Paul talks about the supremacy of Jesus, he is not talking about a doctrine to believe. He's talking about a truth to live. So again, it's not just thinking in your head, I believe Jesus is everything. It's taking what Jesus said and being willing to live that out in hard community, to love each other, to forgive each other, to bear with one another. That's what we're called to do. And so that is what Jesus is like. But again, remember that that is the point of us being the people of God. We are the image of Jesus. Jesus is the icon or the image of God, and we are the image of Jesus. And so if we can live into that kind of a reality, the Bible assumes that we are going to attract people who want that kind of community. I think Doug has said it before, and uh, there's a book that we've both read. But in the early church, because they lived in such close quarters, they didn't have these expansive cities like we do now, they realized because of all the diversity and all the problems that came with being in the Roman Empire, that with this group of Christians, it was better to be a part of them than to not be. It was better in here than it is out there. And, again, that's the task that lies before us. Again, it's not simply up to us. We say it sometimes, it's almost a cliche, but we have the Spirit has created this unity, and we just have to live into it. We don't create it, we just participate in it. And this community needs to see, and I'm not saying there's not other churches that aren't doing this, but speaking about us, this community needs to see that East End Fellowship is the image of Jesus. And that is a very awesome responsibility, um, but that's what we're called to do. And so again, nothing profound. It's just, um, to me, it's it's very serious. Um, And so with that, I'm going to transition into our communion time. Because often when we take communion, we don't necessarily think about this, but what is communion? It is a public statement that we belong to each other, that we are one, that we have unity. That's what we're saying when we take from the common loaf and we drink from the common cup. We're saying that we are one, that Jesus has made us one. But it's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and there's a problem in the Corinthian church. 
they've taken this beautiful picture of no Jew or Greek, no rich or poor, no slave or free, and they've created this atmosphere where there's division. The rich have their meals, but they don't invite the poor. And Paul says, why don't you just have these meals in your homes, but you bring them into the church? And Paul says, you are destroying the very picture of what Jesus came to do. He, he came to create one body, one flesh. There's all sorts of terms that are used in the New Testament to describe who we are. But Paul says the Corinthian church, some are even dying because when they observe communion, it's a lie. It's a sham. There are divisions. They are not one. But yet they take this meal and they pronounce that we're one. And Paul says, you're liars. And Paul says, examine yourselves. And sometimes we take that examine yourselves and we just apply it personally as in, do I have some personal sin issues I need to work out? And I remember younger, I used to get the idea, the idea of this time before communion was to basically pray right up until the time you actually took the elements. So it'd be, you'd be in some very short state of almost perfect sinlessness. And that's the only way you could take communion. And again, there's nothing wrong with examining yourselves and the Spirit pointing out something in your life that, that you need to repent of. But in context, Paul is saying, when you examine yourself, examine to, yourself to see if you are actually living in biblical unity. Or is what you're doing a lie? And that's why it's so serious, because when we partake of these elements, we are proclaiming not only that Jesus has died for us, resurrected, and ascended, we are saying we all belong together, equally. We're all on a level ground. And that's what communion is about. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. Let's quote it. But Paul says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, says he took bread. I guess I have to put down the microphone after all. And it says he broke the bread. And he said, This is my body given for you. And it says in the same way he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Blood shed for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And in so doing, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So tonight, before you come and partake of the elements, take a moment and think about unity. And the part that you are called to play in that unity. Are you living into it? Is there something between you and another person that is between you and there's no unity there? Think about those things. Pray through those things. And then as you come and partake, do it with the remembrance that you are part of this body. We belong to each other. This is our first allegiance. Family is not first allegiance. Certainly country is not first allegiance. This is allegiance.
We belong to each other. We're loyal to each other. We forgive. We bear with one another because it's not easy. But we belong to each other. So as we come, I'd like to ask the servers if they would come. We can just have more volunteers and buildings. Let's uh, thank the Lord for Dan, amen. Thank the Lord, brother. That, that's... People of God, it's critical that we do, we position ourselves to make application to this word. Um, if you get a chance, you may want to go back and watch it on, uh, on, our, on our YouTube channel. Um, this, this, that word is really the future of East End Fellowship. It's the future of whether or not we're going to have the impact that God has called us to have in this specific context. Would you also give thanks for these beautiful young people up here? Great job. I tell you what. I think somebody was like called in at the last minute. Was that you, Cassandra? Mm. No, everybody was ready? Okay, good. I'm glad. Y'all did good. I'm about to give you a little more extra credit. That's good, man. So, um, next week, um, again, another opportunity for us as family to kind of hear where we're going. 
is his breath in our lungs. <laughs> it's his breath in our lungs. That's how all we got it. I love how Dan put us on the spot, though. He said, but we got to do, you know, there's something we do, right? You know, I got to love you when you hurt me. You got to love me when I hurt you. Great, Taylor Morton. Do I have to do that? Do I have to do that? Oh, brother, oh, you doing it. You saying, yes, you do, bro. So would you do this for me? Would you just touch somebody and say, the Lord is teaching me how to love you better. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time today. We thank you again. <clears throat> the power of the word of God. It doesn't need to be added to or taken from. It was just the word of the Lord. And God, we also, I thank you because of my relationship with Dan. I know that actually <clears throat> this is an area where you've given him deep revelation around the people of God. Understanding that we are the people of God. He, he, he has a revelation that sometimes in this culture, we've allowed individualism to distract us from what it means to be the people of God. That is a uniqueness that we have as followers of Jesus. We are born into a family that our creator chose the name Father God. So we honor you. Lord, I pray that you allow us to live this out this week and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. We appreciate your help with the chairs. Thank you so much. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord.